them know, you know. But uh, I'm so glad you came out tonight, and uh, we're looking forward uh, uh, to the rest of this service and, and spending some time with you afterwards as well. I mean, I don't know. Is the teen thing limited to teens, or is pizza, I mean, no, okay, not for us. We can join. I can, I can crash that party. Good. All right, we can get some pizza. That would be, that'll be wonderful. But uh, uh, it's, been, uh, it's been good to be here. I, just going back on the statement before, worried people wouldn't come. This morning, uh, we were having some lunch after the service, and, uh, and I was already thinking that. And then Brother Micah came up to our table and said, well, have a, you know, a safe trip. You know, we'll see you sometime in the future. And I'm thinking, man, he's not even going to come tonight. <laughs> so <laughs> see you later, Jacob. I thought, all right, man. <laughs> oh, it's going to be bad if not even the assistant pastor comes. But no, no, we uh, had a great service this morning. That was wonderful. Enjoyed Sunday school and the service and, and enjoying tonight already as well. But um, uh, I'm going to apologize. I told Pastor that I would apologize right from the get-go tonight uh, before I start. And he's used to it, and she's Miss Rachel's used to it because they, they know my grandfather. All right, I'm just going to, she already probably knows what this apology is for. Uh, if you haven't noticed, I talk fast. And as this goes, I'm just going to talk faster. I'll be honest with you. It's just going to happen. And it was one of my New Year's resolutions was to get back to my pre-deputation weight. That didn't happen. And to also speak slower. And that really didn't happen. And so <laughs> it's just me. But I tell people all the time, I'm going to go to a Spanish-speaking country. When's the last time you were in a Hispanic country where they talk slow? The answer to that is never. So God made me perfect for what I was called to go do, and uh, I believe he does that, and speaking fast is just part of it. I can remember when I was a kid, and my grandfather would be presenting in churches or, or kind of updating churches on furlough. I would travel with him a little bit sometimes, and not only would he talk fast, and he mumbled. Now, I try to speak clearly and not mumble, but he'd mumble, and then he'd go over into Spanish. And my grandma would be in the back waving her arms saying, Rudy, Rudy, go back to England. Go back to England. We're in the States, so I don't think my Spanish is good enough. You're going to have to worry about that. Uh, but we'll, uh, we'll see what God has for us. Uh, I was telling Pastor Phil at lunch that um, there's been more than once. It's probably been four or five times now. And it's always a guy. It's never been a lady. Um, you know, I said that in a church a couple weeks ago, and a lady came up and said it to me just so that I could say that a lady had said it. But she was just joking around. Uh, but I've been to the back of the, you know, the uh, auditorium after a service, and uh, someone will come up to me, and I can almost spot it when it's about to happen now because it's happened so many times. And a guy will shake my hand and say, Brother Jacob, thank you so much. That was wonderful. And I'll say, well, I'm about to say, well, you know, praise the Lord. Glad you enjoyed it. Before I can do that, he'll say it was a great message, at least what I heard of it, you know. And so, <laughs> so this is what I tell people. I'm going to try to talk slower. You try to listen faster, and we'll meet somewhere in the middle, you know. But the good thing about speaking fast is we get done faster, all right. And so uh, uh, the slower I speak, just the longer we'll be here, right. And so uh, you can look at the positive side of it, and, uh, and we'll be all right. I was in a church one time, and the lady pastor's watch said, don't slow down. If they can't catch up, that's on them. Just, uh, just, just speak your speed, and they'll do what they can do. But anyway, if you've got your Bibles, let's open, please, to First Chronicles. And I know maybe that's not a typical uh, book to open to when a missionary comes. But First Chronicles, and if you don't know where that is, it's tucked right in between Genesis and Revelation, all right? You can find it. Uh, yeah, so you're going to get that in a minute. First Chronicles chapter 21. First Chronicles chapter 21. And I honestly, I never do this. We're going to read the chapter. And it's not that short of a chapter. I, I almost never do this. But it's such a, uh, in some ways, it's a common uh, account. I, I, I tend to shy away from the word story because these things happen, right? This is not just uh, some pretend fairy tale that we tell our children at night. These are accounts. These are real. Uh, these things happened. And uh, you might not be as familiar with this passage of Scripture, this narrative, as other places. And so I think it would help us, instead of me trying to give you a synopsis or summary, if we just read the chapter, and, uh, and I'll try to, uh, to read at a good speed. If you can follow along, I think we'll get the idea of, uh, of what uh, God has for us tonight. And I know First Chronicles isn't necessarily your mission's message, but we're going to get there, I promise. I'm a missionary, 
at this point on deputation, I can't do anything, it seems, but just preach on missions, which I think is a wonderful thing. And uh, we love to do it, and we feel it's part of what God has allowed us to do. I mean, we've been in 150 churches. I hope in some way God's helped us uh, to challenge people for missions. I hope in some way God's allowed us to be an encouragement to a missions program or to a people and say, hey, uh, it's your job, it's our job, it's all of our jobs together to get the gospel out to the whole world. And so I think we've got a great example of that tonight, and, uh, and I pray it will be a help and blessing to you. But I'm going to warn you, it's the first time I've preached this message. And sometimes as a missionary, depending on, on church and situations, you might preach a message multiple times and hone in on it. So you're my guinea pigs tonight. If I mess up all over the place, don't worry about it, all right? We'll still get what God has for us. But uh, for, really this afternoon, uh, this message has been on my heart for a while. And uh, sometimes if you've ever talked in front of someone before, done a Sunday school, or done a message, you realize that it just clicks sometimes. It just comes together. And this afternoon it did that. And so uh, I'm excited to be in this passage tonight. But verse uh, chapter 21 just back up one verse to the last verse of chapter 20, because I think that's important to the chapter, right? Of course, these chapter divides are not, you know, they, they're not inspired. I mean, someone put these chapter divisions in just to help us for reference, uh, but I think they're really connected um, uh, here. Uh, look at uh, verse 7, I'm sorry, of chapter 20. It says, but when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, slew him. These were born unto the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David, and by the hand of his servants. David had a mighty victory. That's how the chapter closed, right? I mean, uh, these people had fallen. David had once again been victorious as he had been so many times. And I think he began to get a prideful heart. And look at verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 1. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go, number Israel from Bathsheba even to Dan, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered the Lord, Make his people an hundred times so many more as they be. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? You say, what's going on here? Well, what's happening is God has specifically told Israel they're not to number the people. Why? Because they're to depend on him, right? They're not to depend on their numbers or their strength or their ability. Uh, David and, and the nation of Israel as a whole was to depend on God for what they were to accomplish. It wasn't going to be on his might or by his sword or how many men he had. That was the whole point. And David, now in his confidence and in his pride, is saying, I want to see how many men I have. I want to see how strong we've become. I want to see how mighty of a nation we are. And his pride had led him to this fall of commanding Joab to go and count the people directly against God's command. And don't you find that we're never more vulnerable or susceptible to temptation than, we've been, than when we've been deceived by our own pride to think that we're invincible? David thought he was something. In that moment of pride, who comes? Satan comes, and he's going to tempt him. And in this moment, he's going to fall. Joab gives him words of wisdom in verse 3. David ignores them. Nevertheless, verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab. That's an argument going on there. And David won. Wherefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David. And all they of Israel were a thousand, thousand, and a hundred thousand men that drew sword. And Judah was four hundred, threescore, and ten thousand men that drew sword. But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. Verse 7, And God was displeased with this thing, and therefore he smote Israel. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Our sin always has consequences, doesn't it? It's kind of a unique thing in this passage. Many people have said you can choose your sin, but not your consequence. In a moment, we're going to see God allows David in a way to choose 
uh, what punishment the, that the nation of Israel is going to receive. But I think there's an important lesson there for us. And that's not the message. It's just something free. Our sin always has consequences, not just for us, but for others. I think a lot of people live in their sin and think that they're the only one that it's ever going to affect. You don't live in a bubble, do you? You don't live in a vacuum. You have a fear or a sphere of influence that God has given you, and your sin and your iniquity will always cause pain and suffering to somebody else. Verse 8, And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, he was begging him, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Verse 9, And the Lord spake unto Gad, David's seer, the prophet there, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things, choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, choose thee. Imagine what kind of choice David was going to have to make. Look at these choices. Either three years famine or three months to be destroyed before, destroyed before thy foes, while that the sword of thy enemies overtaketh thee. Or else, three days, the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coast of Israel. Now therefore advise thyself what word I shall bring unto the, again to him and sent, uh, that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. I'm between a rock and a hard place. Now we say that, right? Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. What an incredible consequence that Israel was going through because of David's sin. Can you imagine his choice? We have, I have a hard time on deputation, me and Sherry, of just deciding what restaurant to eat at on the road. You know what I mean? I mean, we're saying, you know, uh, uh, Panera Bread or Subway or, or, or Sherry will say, uh, not that I'm down in wives in any way here, okay, but, but, they'll, but she'll say, I don't care where we eat. And then I'll make a decision. And she'll say, oh, no, not there. You know what I mean? And so I thought you said you didn't care. You know, we've all been there, right? You know, we, can, we can hardly make a decision on where to eat, but David's confronted with a choice that I can't imagine having to make. And he ultimately chose to, to put his... Uh, uh, his life and life of Israel in the hands of God and, and, and the pestilence and the angels of the Lord. So verse 15, God sent an angel into Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld and he repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed, it is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand, stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that I have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, that David should go up and set up an altar upon, unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons with him and hid themselves. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. And as David came to Ornan, Aaron looked upon and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it me for the full price that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said unto David, Take it to thee, and let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for the burnt offering, and the threshing instruments for wood, and the wheat for the meat offering. I give it all. Isn't that a great phrase? Verse 24, And King David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price, for I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. So David gave to Ornan the place six hundred shekels of gold by weight, 
And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. And the Lord commanded the angel and he put up his sword again into the sheath thereof. And that time when David saw the Lord had answered him the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, then he sacrificed there for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness and the altar of the burnt offerings were at that season in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God for he was afraid because of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this evening. Lord, we've read a long passage, and Lord, they've been so kind to listen and read along. And Lord, I ask that you would work in our hearts tonight, Lord, that we would get a hold of what you'd have for us. And Lord, as I have prayed so many times, I ask that you'd help us to leave this place changed. Uh, Lord, what's the purpose of coming and hearing your word if it's not to change us? Uh, Lord, you want to apply your truth to our hearts so that we would leave here different. Lord, you promise that your sword is sharper than any two-edged sword. It can pierce through our souls, and Lord, we pray tonight that it would pierce us, it would challenge us, it would move us, and Lord, help us to leave this place that was somehow different than how we came in. That's going to take us having open ears and open hearts to all you'd have for us. Lord, speak to us. We trust all you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. And uh, I guess this is a fairly commonly known passage, somewhat popular, I would suppose, but if you've heard a message on this passage before, it's likely that you've heard it from verse 24. When David had said to uh, Ornan that he needed the threshing floor for this sacrifice that God had commanded him to make, and then Ornan had offered it to him, but David had said at the end of verse 24 um, that he would not offer a burnt sacrifice or a burnt offering without cost, right? And sometimes that same message is preached over from 2 Samuel, I believe it is, at the end there in, uh, in chapter 24, and he says those same lines, that I won't offer to God something that hasn't cost me something, right? And that's commonly the... Uh, I think the message that is often preached in this passage, and it's a good one, right? And there's all kinds of application that could be made. There's all kinds of messages that could be drawn from that and from David's iniquity and from God's judgment and, and from his, uh, his begging of the Lord to save the judgment from those who hadn't committed the sin but taking the responsibility for himself. You could go all over the place with that tonight, but I've never, and maybe it's just because I haven't heard it, uh, maybe it's been done, but I've never heard a message on verse 23 and on Ornan. I think his response to what David had asked him is significant. I think Ornan's commitment that he made to David in this moment of trial and affliction and danger and peril, right, for all of, uh, of Jerusalem and all of Israel as a whole is imperative and it's important. Because David came to Ornan and he's begging him to have the place there, the threshing hole. He's saying, I'll buy it, I'll purchase it. The Lord has commanded me to make this offering. In verse 23, we'll read it again. And Ornan said unto David, this was his response, this was his commitment to David and his request that he would have the threshing floor. He said, take it. And let my Lord the King do that which is good in his eyes. And then he goes on. He doesn't just say, take it. It's not take it at a cost. He says, what? Well, lo, I give thee. Not just that floor that I've given you, but the oxen and the threshing instruments for wood and the wheat for the meat offering. And he says, I give it all. He wasn't going to charge David a thing, right? He was going to give it all, whatever it took to stay this, uh, uh, this plague, whatever it took to stay the angel of the Lord and the judgment upon Israel. He said, I'll do whatever it takes, and I'm going to commit to you, David. Here's the, uh, here's, the, here's the threshing floor. Here's the meat for the offering. Here's the stuff for the fire. Here's the wood. Take whatever you need. It's all yours. Take it. I think that was a sacrificial gift from him, wasn't it? I mean, that wasn't just offering a little. This was his meat. This was his ox. This was important to him. And he said, here, David, at no cost to you, take it all. I love his heart. I love his response. Right in this moment of peril, he said, I'll give it to you. It's yours. I think this commitment is important to us. He said, well, how does that apply to missions? How in the world can you turn that around? And, and I know many applications can be made here, but I think, first of all, this commitment was a motivated one. Why? Because in the verses before, in verse, uh, in verse 21, 
I'm sorry, in verse 20, it says, And Ornan turned back, which means he turned around, right? And he saw that angel of the Lord, him and his four sons, saw it at the same time, and then they hid themselves. So think of the narrative of how it's happening. All these thousands have died in Israel, and now the angel is up at Jerusalem, right? And the sword is literally over the city. And Ornan, from wherever he is, at his threshing floor, later would become the mount, he's able to see the, the angel of the Lord with the sword drawn. Right? You think he's terrified? I think he's scared, right? And his four sons with him. It's not like when David comes, he's actively threshing wheat. At that point, he's on the floor, but he's in hiding, right? Because he's seen the problem. And when David asks him for the threshing floor for this sacrifice, I think he's motivated, isn't he? His commitment is motivated by what? His commitment is motivated by the need that he sees. He sees that his people... At Jerusalem, yes, he as a Jebusite was a Canaanite, but Jerusalem was his city before Israel had come. And no doubt Onan had been converted and feared the Lord God himself as well. But his city was about to be destroyed. And his people were about to be killed, right? He saw the sword of the Lord about to come down on his own and on his sons and his family. And what did he say was motivated? He said, there's a need, there's a, there's a problem, and I've got to do something about it. And what was his commitment? What was his response? Here, take it all. His commitment was motivated by the need. Don't we have a need? I mean, in this particular case, and in this narrative, it, the need is what? The city's about to be slain. Do we have a need? We do, don't we? We have a world of seven and a half billion people. Let your mind wrap around that number for a moment. Right? Seven and a half billion people, and the best numbers tell us that maybe, maybe half have ever heard a clear presentation of the gospel. You think there's a need? I think, there's, I think there's a world that's lost and dying, right? And on its way to a hell that we don't like to talk about or mention unless they hear what Jesus has done for them, right? Unless they hear the gospel message of what God has done and what he can do, they're about to die in their sins and pass away in every moment they are. You think there's a need? I think there's a sword that's over top of this world. And I understand our God is a God of love and he's offered and provided it away. But in his way, his command is you and I are to go and give his great commission, his gospel to those that have never heard it. What does Mark 16 say? Go into all the world, every bit, right? Every corner, preach the gospel to every creature. I don't care who they are or where they're from or what color they are, they're dying and they need to hear. Ornan was in a moment of peril, right? He was on the precipice of destruction of his city and he was motivated. He said, I'm gonna do something about it. David, you've asked me for my floor, here's everything. Don't you think we should be motivated? If, if there's anything in 150 churches that has saddened me, if there's anything that I could put my finger on, it would be this. I'm not saying it's true of here. I'm just saying true in a general way. It's apathy. You say, well, what's apathy? It's just getting content and settled in where we are and, and where we're at and what we have and not concerned that anybody else would have it. Do, do you think, I, don't, don't answer this out loud. This is rhetorical or, or something for you to ponder in your own heart. But can we say, I think that we can, but can we say that Christianity as a, as a whole has failed if half the world has never heard the gospel? I think we can say we failed in some way. I think we can say our motivation's been lost. I think we can say in some way we've become apathetic. And God is asking something of us, but our commitment isn't there. Why? Because we're not motivated. And we don't see the need. Why does pastor have missionaries come through? Because we want to show you need, right? Our video that we showed last year, why do we put that video together to show you faces? of people that are lost and they're going to go to hell unless someone goes and tells them what God has done for them. We've got to be motivated, don't we? I mean, we've got, we got, we got to be able to make a commitment to God, but we're not going to do it if we're not motivated. I think Ornan's response was a, was a commitment of motivation. And this world won't be reached if we don't recognize this great need. They need to hear the gospel. They're perishing. 
If I may, this, I, and I'll, I'll save it for a moment. If we have time at the end, there's an excerpt from Amy Carmichael I'd like to read about our motivation. But we're going to move on to point two. Not only was his commitment motivated, but his commitment was personal. Rafe, where was he at when he saw the angels of the Lord? He was at home base with his own sons, right? And they all went and hid together. And I would too, and you probably would have to, right? Until David came out and, and got us to come out of our hiding, right? But this thing for Ornan was very personal. That city was his people, right? And these that could perish with them were his sons. And this was his family. And he had to do something. And he didn't look at the next guy. When David came, you know what Ornan could have responded? He could have responded, well, David, you're king. You could go anywhere and ask for their thresh floor. I don't know what Ornan had or didn't have. But it would have been easy, right, to think, well, why couldn't you go to the next guy's threshing floor and ask this of him? This is going to cost me something. Why couldn't you go there or here or go to your own place or find the temple or do something? Why you got to come to me? But his response wasn't that at all. He said, I'm going to take this personally. God's given me an opportunity to have a personal involvement in staying the judgment of God, and I'm going to do it. His commitment of giving it all, his commitment of giving everything was not just motivated, but it was personal. He said, I'm going to do what God has asked of me. Has the church been given the Great Commission? Certainly. Is this church's goal to reach the world? I would certainly hope so, and I believe it is. But how can a church be motivated uh, to reach the world or to send out missionaries or to do their job to, to spread the gospel out to everyone that they can? You know, a church is not just a building, right? We know that. The pastor said this point, church is people, right? But how easy is it sometimes in a congregation of people to pass that on to somebody else and say, well, where I slack, they'll do, right? And where I don't, someone else will. And where I don't worry about it, I'm sure someone else will worry about it. What's it going to take to reach the world? It's going to take Christians who take it very personally. And like Ornan, they say, this is real, and not just for somebody else, and not just for that guy, but no, this is for me. And God says to me that he wants me to be involved and do all that I can do to spread his gospel and message further. I think it would change Christianity radically if we would take it personally and say, this great commission is not a missionary's job or just a pastor's job or just the guy that has a lot of money's job to make sure that it happens. It's my job, right? It's your job. It's our job. It's personal. Ornan's own children were going to perish if he didn't do something. And he said, I got to do something to stay God's judgment. David, take it. We're not even going to take the time to have the transaction. Do what you need to do. I'm going to give it to you. I believe he thought and, and felt that it was personal. But not only was it a motivated commitment or a personal commitment, but lastly, I believe it was a sacrificial commitment. Compare what he was asked. Look in verse, uh, look in verse 22. Then David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor. What did he ask for? He asked for the place, right? What did Ornan offer in verse 23? He said the place, sure, but then he said the oxen and the instruments, and the wood, and the wheat, <laughs> and whatever else you need. See, David didn't even need all that in the beginning. Right? He said, just give me the place. God said to make a sacrifice here. Give me the place here so I can do it. What was Ornan's response? Ornan's response, I'm not going to stop at the place, right? I'm not going to stop with the bare minimum of what you asked me to do. I'm going to do all I can do to get this thing going and to stay the hand of God. How should our commitment to God and to missions and to evangelizing this world be? It should be a sacrificial commitment. He said at the end of that verse, and that phrase rings true uh, to me, and I hope it does to you, he says, I give it all. I give it all. Isn't that a powerful phrase? What was it that Ornan was going to hold back? Nothing. What is it that you and I would hold back? I fear often, in my, I only know my own heart, I don't know yours, 
I know in my own heart, I'm tempted often to hold back quite a lot. <laughs> what, you just went through Acts chapter 9, uh, right, I believe just a week or so ago. And what was Paul, I think it's so important, what was Paul's first response upon conversion? He was on the road to Damascus, right? He was knocked off. He had said, who are you? You know, and the Lord told him that it was Jesus that he was persecuting. And the next phrase out of his mouth, when he's been converted, uh, when he's accepted the gospel message for the first time, he said, Lord, but what do I have me to do? Imagine that now, all that Paul's going to do in his ministry, right? All that he's going to accomplish. Uh, almost the whole New Testament is given to us by his hand through inspiration, right? Some 32 uh, uh, churches are established throughout the New Testament, many of those from his ministry and his ministry team. And then he's going to travel some 15,000 miles, and ultimately we're here in some way because of Paul's ministry. But where did it start? On the road to Damascus, when he said, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. There was no exceptions, no exclusions. He just said, I'm available. I'll do whatever you want. I see that here in the heart of Ornan's response to He said, I give it all. God, what do you want? I feel that as, as Christians, often we're giving God a part, we're giving God a piece, but are we giving him all of it? And see, that's an easy thing to say, right? <laughs> but when the rubber meets the road on what that means, it can be a scary thing, can't it? Say, God, I'll give it all. Whatever you want to do with it, I'll give you my life. Here it is. And all that that would include, I'll give it to you. You said, that would cause sacrifice. That would cost me something. Exactly. The world will never be reached, never, if Christians cannot make a commitment of sacrifice. If we can't say, I will do whatever it takes to get God's message out so that this world can hear and God's judgment can be saved, the world's never going to get changed. Say, how are three and a half billion, three and a half billion people? That's impossible. No, I believe it is possible because God's given us to do it. <laughs> Would God have commanded us something that couldn't be done? I don't believe that he would have, right? I believe he's given us the ability to do it, the power to do it, the means to do it. The question is, are we doing it? And how are we going to get there through sacrifice? See, that's a dirty word. It is. I remember we were in several missions conferences, and understand the heart and spirit in which I say this. I don't mean this in a mean way in any way. And the, uh, the example that was given is actually not even a bad example. I'm not against the example. It just it struck me in a way that I had never thought about it before. We were in three missions conferences earlier this year, three different speakers, three different churches, three different everything, but the same example was given in every conference. And that example was this. They were talking about missions and, uh, and our commitment to it. And of course, in a time of conference, you're often challenging uh, your members as you're trying to take on missionaries to, to spread your reach farther around the world. And so there was a monetary commitment to be made and things like that. And each time the, the, uh, the example, the illustration that was given was this, was would we be willing to give up a, a cup of Starbucks so that someone around the world can hear the gospel? And in the next conference, I heard the same illustration given. Would we be willing to give up a, a cup of Starbucks so someone around the world can hear the gospel? In the next church, the same example given. Wouldn't we be willing just to give up a cup? And, and it began to, uh, began to hit me in, in a weird way. And I began to think, that's my own heart. That my definition of sacrifice that my idea of what God might ask of me is that I would have to give up some convenience so that maybe someone might hear the gospel around the world. God, help us that our commitment be stronger than that. God, help us that our commitment be deeper than that. God, help us like Ornan, we say, I see, I see God's judgment is coming. See, in Christianity in America and in certain parts around this country, I've, I think we've gotten really good at yelling at the darkness, really good at being mad at it, really good at spitting and slobbering and getting all upset at it. And how could they? And look at this and, ah, and writing them off and be done with it and all that. I think we can push that to a side for a moment and say, they need to hear the gospel. If it wasn't for Jesus, we'd be in the same spot they are. 
If it wasn't for Jesus, we'd be worse off than they are, right? If it wasn't for what he's done in our life, and our hearts, we'd be the same and not see them in eyes of, of self-righteousness, but see them in eyes of, of how God sees them and have compassion on them and say, we've got to do something to make a difference because judgment is coming and we've got to be willing to make the sacrifice. If we're going to reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, first of all, we've got to be motivated. I'd ask you tonight, are you motivated? I mean, uh, this is a simple way to ask it, and I don't mean it in, in, uh, in any way at all disrespectfully. But do you care? Do you care that your neighbor, who maybe has never heard, is going to go to hell if you don't tell them about what Jesus can do for them? Do you care that the person at your workplace has no other exposure to the gospel, perhaps, than you? Do you care that there are people around this world who have never once had the chance to even hear the name of Jesus? I have a friend in Cambodia, and he's playing a church in a town that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. My wife would do better than I could at it. And uh, it's this remote place. I say remote. It's still a fairly large town. got about 20,000 people in it. But when he was on his uh, survey trip for that particular town, after an internship of, of working in one of the capital cities, he just went around and asked people for days, do you, have you ever heard the name of Jesus? Of course, in Khmer, the language there in Cambodia. And that one person that he ran into in all of his time there as he was considering and praying over this city, had any people in those city ever heard the name Jesus? Didn't even know who it was. We're in a VBS and, and a pastor telling me uh, that kids there uh, from their community right there, uh, I, I believe it was in North Carolina, I said there were kids that had come to the VBS that year and uh, first time that it really happened to him where they were talking about Jesus and there were several who for the first time this was, this was a new name to them. They didn't know who he was. <laughs> They'd never been told, never about a church, never anything. Do we care about the need? Are we motivated to say, I got to do something? I don't know what that is, <laughs> right? But I got to do something. To Ornan, in this moment, it was clear. David came to him. This is the command. I need it. Ornan said, here you go. Is it personal to you? It's an easy thing to pass it off to somebody else. It's easy to say, it's not my responsibility, it's someone else's. It's easy to say things like they've made their bed. Now let them lie in it. It's not my problem. I believe God gave it to us, didn't he? In each of the Gospels, he gives the commission. In Acts 1.8, he gives it again. And all throughout the New Testament, you see men, particularly in Acts, the disciples who were motivated by the resurrected Christ and what they had to seen, the truth of his word, to get this Gospel message out no matter what it costs. You realize that all of the apostles outside of perhaps John, who died in exile, that all of them were, were martyred for the faith? They all gave up everything. Why would they do that? You say, that's radical Christianity. You say, that's, uh, that's, that, that, that's, that's fanaticism. That's, that's going overboard. I, I don't know what kind of sect. Would God ask of that? I think he would. I'm not saying he's asked us all to go and be martyrs, but I think he's asked us to, to take it personal. I think he's asked us to take this commitment and say, hey, it's worth my sacrifice. But let me ask you some questions as we close. I mentioned a statement a moment ago that only radical Christianity would reach the world. But my question would be this, is it really so radical? In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20, we're told what? That we are not our own, but that we're bought with a price. You're going to find over in Romans that God tells us that he withheld not his own son. How is it possible that we withhold something from God? In Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, Paul begs, he beseeches them that they would offer their bodies a living sacrifice. But I think one of the key things to that portion of Scripture is when he closes it off with, which is your reasonable service. 
God's done everything for us. It's the easiest thing in the world to sit in apathy and do nothing. It's a difficult and hard thing to say, God's asked me to be part of the Great Commission. I don't know what that looks like for you individually. I don't know what resources you have. I don't know what abilities God's given you. But you're here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, and you personally have been given this Great Commission, and you have to take it personally and say, I'll do what God asks of me. Why? Because I'm not my own, I'm His. This service is reasonable, whatever He would ask of me. I like the example of Luke 5 and verse 11 when God calls several of the disciples when they were fishing. I remember they were struggling and he told them to put the nets on the other side. And then they had the largest catch of fish they'd ever had in their whole time of being fishermen. I think it's really neat that that's when God called them to go. Right? It, was, it wasn't on their worst day of fishing when they were done and fed up with it. It was on their best day. The most that they'd ever had at one time. Let's take this to market and see what happens, right? We're going to eat good tonight. You know, it was their best day. And God said, leave it and follow me. I don't know what God would ask of you. I'm not sure. That's not for me to tell you. But it's for me to say you need to search your own heart. And you say, God, am I committed? Am I motivated? Is this personal to me? Am I willing to sacrifice? We call it radical, I think, often because sacrifice is no longer the norm in Christianity here in America. Think of Paul. In chapter 9 of Acts, how did he leave the city? He left it in a basket, didn't he? You remember? He went to Damascus, high on his horse. He was going to bring the Christians back in chains. Women and men alike didn't care, right? He was going to leave orphans behind, uh, children with no parents. It didn't matter to him. If you name the name of Christ, he was going to drag you back, right, and, and throw you in the dungeons. And, and his hope, I'm sure, was that they would be killed for calling on this false Messiah. And then God changes his whole life, right? The Damascus experience happens. Right? He's, he's, he's receptive to the gospel, and his life is changed forever. And then in the city itself, the Jews there are now going to try to kill him. And then uh, one night, they let him over the wall in a basket. Think about that comparison for a moment. How did he leave Jerusalem? He left Jerusalem an important and powerful man with all the influence and affluence you could possibly want. He had money, no doubt. He was a Pharisee of high esteem. He had gone and, and yelled at the high priest. I think he was an important guy. With papers in his pocket, soldiers at his back, he was the man. How did he leave the city? As a result of the gospel and what it meant to him and how it changed his life forever, he was going to leave the city in a basket like a criminal. You think that's sacrifice? I think it is. I think it's a man saying, I've given up everything. He was never going to go back to his home in Jerusalem. I don't think we often think of all that he gave up. But to him, what was it? It was nothing. What did he call it in Philippians? Do you remember in Philippians when he compares and he says all that he gave up? I love his comparison. It's probably not appropriate to say it in church, but it's in the Bible, so we can go there, right? He says it's dung, right? <laughs> he said everything I gave up is dung, right? It's nothing compared to what I have found in Christ. Shouldn't that be our Christianity today? Shouldn't we say God saved us? You're never going to be able to shut me up about it. You're never going to be able to stop me from telling others. You're never going to be able to hinder me from getting this message out to those around me and beyond. So my prayer for us tonight is that we would have a commitment, that you would say, I'm motivated to do something. But it would go deeper than that. You'd say, this thing is personal. And then when you get there to the moment, the crossroads of sacrifice, you'd be willing to say, no matter what, God, whatever you'd ask of me, I'll do it. I'll give you one short example. Read this story and we're done. I was in Virginia Beach. Uh, that's where we live. So of course I was in Virginia Beach. That makes sense. But we were at the Virginia Beach Aquarium. 
And uh, anyone ever been to an adventure park before? Like the, the obstacle courses that go in between the trees? Right? It's a pretty crazy thing. I don't know if they have them around here or not. Most of the major cities have them now. And so we were at this aquarium. There's this great adventure park in the back. I say great because my wife likes it. I hate it because I hate heights, all right? But what it is is these pine trees uh, in the back, and they've done these wooden platforms around all these pine trees with all these uh, rope obstacles from tree to tree. It's really, it's really kind of cool. I mean, they've got some that are 10 feet off the ground, but of course, my wife wants to go to the Black Diamond, which are like 60 feet off the ground. And so I love my wife, and so I said, I'll go. All right, I became a tree hugger that day, all right? I was literally around the tree, like, oh my goodness. But we're up, uh, we're up these trees, and uh, we're going from tree to tree, and I'm sweating bullets. You know, you're tied off, but it doesn't help me any. I'm, I'm a complete wreck, but I'm doing it, all right? I'm making it because uh, I love my wife. That's what I tell myself every couple seconds. I love her. I love her. I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do this, right? Now she takes her brother. I no longer go on that trip. Once was enough, all right? But you get to the end of one of the Black Diamond courses, and they warned you about it kind of in the, uh, uh, the, the, the first initial thing when they're hooking you up with the harnesses and all that kind of stuff, the orientation or whatever. Uh, but we're at the, the, the tree, and I remember them mentioning this, but it, it just didn't seem real at the time. And so when you get to the last tree, 60 feet off the ground, maybe higher, I don't know, there's nothing. It's just the final platform. There's no steps, you know, there's no ladder, there's no elevator, there's no escalator, <laughs> there's, there's nothing. <laughs> All there is is a lanyard, like a yo-yo, attached to a tree limb. And you're supposed to take the, the lanyard and pull it, right? So you have to reach out and pull it, and then attach it to your belt, unhook from the tree, and jump. You're supposed to jump off the platform. And you free fall for about six to ten feet, and then the lanyard catches. And then you're supposed to go semi-slowly to the ground. <laughs> and I'm looking down, <laughs> I'm thinking, no way. So there's a worker down there, and I'm asking him, I was like, what happens if I don't do this? And he's like, well, we have to call the firemen. <laughs> I don't want to be on Channel 13 News tonight, right? It's not every guy's dream to be carried out of a tree by a hunky fireman, right? That's not my dream in life, all right? And so that's not, no, that's not for me. And there was a 10-year-old behind us, and so I just let him go first. I'm like, you jump and see what happens. And so I let him go, you know? And then, uh, and then the guy from down, down there, and he says this. I don't know why he says this. He says, and uh, he didn't know my name. He just called me, hey, you, or whatever, yeah. He's like, remember when you jump, you got to jump far. Because otherwise, your head can hit the platform. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> so not only can I not just nicely go off, you know, I have to jump, right? I mean, everything, right? I got I to gotta give it all. I have to trust that language so completely that I'll leave that platform in its entirety. I am here. I'm alive today. No firemen came to the tree. I did jump. It just took a while. I did not land on my feet at the bottom. I screamed like a girl the whole way down and landed on my bottom, but, but I'm here, right? <laughs> but the point was what? I had to jump off that platform. I had to leave it totally and completely and trust that faith. Why aren't we willing to make commitments to God? I think it's rooted in trust. I think it's rooted in, in trust to say, if I get motivated in that way, and if I were to take it personally that way, and if I were to say, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do, I'm scared of what you'd ask of me. I think it's ironic that the one who loves us most, who created us, who promised that everything that he brought into our lives would be for our good, the one who loves us more than anyone has ever loved us and ever will, it's those hands in which we are scared and often lacking faith to put our lives into, me included. When I had to say yes to God to go to Bolivia, that wasn't something that just happened. It was a struggle. It wasn't something that, that, that just occurred overnight in some spiritual giant, here we go. It was, God, do you know what you're doing? 
Are you sure this is right? You want us to go. You want me to go. My family included. You know I have kids. You know I have this. You know I have that. But at some point, we have to get to the place where we say, God, I'll do whatever you want. I trust you. I'll sacrifice whatever it takes. God's asked some to sacrifice more than others, but it's not yours to worry what he's asked them to sacrifice. And it's not mine to worry about you, and it's not you to worry about mine, but it's ours to say, God, I'll do whatever you need me to do. The Great Commission will not reach the world if Christians aren't committed. It won't. We will live another generation, and then years from now, we'll be saying five, six billion have never heard. Before you know it, we'll be saying 80, 90% have never heard. And before you know it, we'll lose it. <laughs> and I know that Christianity will not pass from there. I know God will keep a remnant. I understand those things. But what I'm saying is God's given us a job to do. Let's get motivated to go do it. Let me read you this excerpt like I promised. It's from Amy Carmichael, and then we'll close. It says, the Tom Toms, I understand this is Amy Carmichael's excerpt uh, here from a book, uh, but it's, uh, it's not a literal story. She's seeing Christianity in her day and her time, and she's writing a picture of what that looks like, okay? And I think it's, I think it's something great for us to consider. So this is what she wrote. She said, The tom-toms thumped straight on all night, and the darkness shuddered round me like a living, feeling thing. I could not go to sleep, so I lay awake and looked, and I saw, as it seemed this, that I stood on a grassy sward, and at my feet a precipice broke sheer down into infinite space. I looked but saw no bottom, only cloud shapes, black and furiously coiled, and great shadow-shrouded hollows and unfathomable depths. Back I drew, dizzy at the depths. And then I saw forms of people moving single file along the grass. They were making for the edge. There was a woman with a baby in her arms and another little child holding on to her dress. She was on the very verge. But then I saw she was blind and could not see. She lifted her foot on the next step and it trod air. She was over and the children over with her. Then I saw more streams of people flowing from all quarters. All were blind, stone blind. All made straight for the precipice edge. There were shrieks as they suddenly knew themselves to be falling and a tossing up of helpless arms, catching, clutching at just empty air. But some went over quietly and fell without ever making a sound. Then I wondered with a wonder that was simply agony why no one stopped them at the edge. I could not. I was glued to the ground. I could only call, though I strained and tried, and only a whisper would come. Then I saw that along the edge there were sentries, but they were set at intervals. The intervals were too great. They were too wide. Unguarded gaps were laid between. And over these gaps, the people fell in their blindness, never warned. And the green grass seemed blood red to me, and the gulf yawned like the mouth of hell. And then I saw like a little picture of peace, a group of people under some trees with their backs turned away from the gulf. They were making daisy chains. Sometimes when a piercing shriek cut the quiet air, it reached them and it disturbed them. And they wanted to do something to help, but all the others would pull that one down and say, why should you get so excited? You must wait for a definite call. You haven't been finished your daisy chain yet. It would be really selfish of you to leave us and to finish this work alone. There was another group. It was made up of people whose great desire was to get more sentries out, but they found that very few wanted to go. Sometimes there were no sentries for miles and miles along this edge. Once a girl stood alone in her place, waving the people back, but her mother and other relations at home called and reminded her that furlough was due and she must not break those rules. Being tired and needing to change, she had to go and rest for a while, but no one went to guard the gap in her place. Once a child caught at the tuft of grass that grew at the very brink of the gulf, it clung, it called, but nobody seemed to hear. And the girl who longed to be back in her gap thought that she heard the cry of this little one. She sprang up and wanted to go, at which they reproved her, reminding her that no one is necessary anywhere. 
the gap would be taken care of. Then they sang a hymn together. Through the hymn came another sound like the pain of a million broken hearts wrung out in one full drop, one sob. And a horror of great darkness was upon me, for I knew what it was. It was the cry of the blood. Then thundered a voice, the voice of the Lord, and he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. The tom-tom still beat heavily. The darkness still shuddered and shivered about me. I heard the yells of the devil dancers and the weird, wild shrieks of the devil possessed just outside the gate. But what does it matter after all? It has gone on for years. It will continue to go on for years. Why must we make such a fuss? Then she writes this in closing. God forgive us. God arouse us. God shame us out of callousness. God shame us out of our sin. There's a world that's dying, isn't it? They need to hear. We got to be committed to go. We got to say, I'm motivated. It's personal. I'll sacrifice whatever God requires to make sure this world hears the gospel. Pastor, I'll turn back to you. Amen. Thank you for that. I tell you, sometimes it's good just to be reminded the world's a little bit bigger than our bubble. I think a lot of times we get caught up week in and week out, and the only thing we think about.